gracious Heavenly Father, we all have a race to run. And I pray that we would race in such a way that we would obtain the prize. God, you're calling each and every one of us into different callings on this life that we have on this earth. Things that you're actively drawing us to walk in. But bottom line, Lord God, you want to see us be faithful. And so God, I pray that we would be faithful. That we would be faithful people who at the end of our lives, just as Paul said, is that we, we ran the race. We fought the fight. That we have the faith. And so, God, I pray that we would look forward to the crown of righteousness that awaits us. As, Lord, we do, just as Paul said, long for you to return, that we would see and truly appreciate your return, your appearance. And so, God, I pray that the, the attitude of our hearts would be to long for that day that, Jesus, you would return. Lord, come and come quickly. But until then, Lord, I pray that you would give us the endurance that we need by way of your spirit to run the race that is set before us, to fight the good fight, to keep the faith. And so, God, would you stir our hearts tonight, inspire us to see what all we can do to give, give our lives away for the sake of the gospel. And it is in your precious and holy name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. What lengths would you go to in order to see someone get saved? What lengths would you go to in order to see someone get saved? Uh, do you know the story of Samwise Gamgee, also known as Samwise the Brave? Uh, Sam is a fictional character from the Lord of the Rings saga. Uh, he is a good friend to Frodo the one who is actually tasked with returning the ring of power to Mordor in order to destroy it. Uh, Sam ventures with Frodo for thousands and thousands of miles. If you watch the movies, a lot of it is just walking. Um, but it's also a lot of action there too for, for you know, some fun stuff. Uh, he is the only friend that Frodo can trust throughout the entire journey to Mordor. And by the end of it, he has given up everything to see his friend be delivered of his burden. Frodo wouldn't have gotten far without Sam. Because nothing was more important to Sam than seeing Frodo destroy the ring and return peace to all Middle-earth. What links would you go to in order to see someone delivered from their burden? Tonight, we will see what links the Apostle Paul went to so that he might, uh, we, he might see people rescued from their sin and won to an abundant and eternal life in Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as we continue our sermon series through 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, as you're turning, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of context. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth to correct their divisions that had sprouted up around these various teachers. And he urged the church to, or early on in his letter, to prioritize the gospel because it was that shared focus that would bring about unity in the church. 
once he instructs the church on these divisive issues, he then turns his attention towards some items that they had asked him about. Uh, one of the items he addressed was uh, about sex, which he talked. To, we talked about in our mini-series on marriage and singleness. And if you missed any of those sermons, uh, they are available on our webpage at bellevue.org slash YA. Uh, then he entertains this debate that was going on in the church about whether or not Christians should eat food that was offered to idols. Paul heard that people in the church were getting puffed up with their accurate knowledge about God, but were making their brothers and sisters in Christ stumble with their rights, their liberties. And we saw last week that we must balance our biblical knowledge with sacrificial love as we look to keep each other's conscience clear. Paul finished that passage by applying his teaching to himself. He said at the end of our last passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. In tonight's passage, uh, we will see him continue this thread of reflecting on his personal example as he defends his apostleship from those who oppose him. And to set this up, I'd like for us to read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 uh, to begin our time together. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 1 through 3 say this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Let me pray for us. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just prompt our hearts to see where we can surrender our rights for the substantial reward that you have to give. Uh, Lord, would you bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, our sermon title tonight is just that, Surrendering Rights for Substantial Reward. Surrendering Rights for Substantial Reward. Paul just loves posing questions to make a point. He does it several times in this passage, so uh, be ready. Uh, and a few of them are right here out of the gate in the first few verses. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Remember, he's helping Corinthians wrestle with their rights. So to paraphrase, he's saying, if anyone knows the freedom that we have, it's me because I'm an apostle. I have seen the risen Lord Jesus. And if anyone knows the authenticity of Paul's apostleship, shouldn't it be the church in Corinth? They are the fruit of his labor, his workmanship, he calls them. The church knows from their experience of sitting under Paul's preaching that he is an apostle. They are the evidence that he was sent by Jesus to see them saved. And we see that in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 11. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city, he's talking about Corinth, 
who are my people. And so Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Jesus had people in Corinth that he wanted Paul to play an active role in seeing saved from their sin and one to a relationship with Jesus. And Paul was faithful and he was fruitful. And those people were a seal, a guarantee of authenticity to show his apostleship was genuine. Paul then proceeds to present a defense against those scrutinizing his ministry, and that is what we'll see in the remainder of this chapter as we learn the makings of a champion. That's how I'm dividing up our points tonight, the makings of a champion. And by the end of it, you'll see kind of where I get that concept. The first, a champion acknowledges his rights. A champion acknowledges his rights. Paul acknowledged his rights. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 uh, from 3 to 12, which say this. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or tends to a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law say the same? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? A champion acknowledges his rights. Paul has a right to eat and drink. Right? Thinking about what we talked about last week, he knows he would be well within his rights to eat meat offered to an idol in the temple or to drink wine even though it is associated with drunkenness and debauchery. He has a right to these things, as well as to take a believing wife. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that that's included there, that believing wife. I appreciate that Paul says a believing wife because it just revisits what we saw was important in our own dating relationships as single people. Does the person you are interested in believe in Jesus to the extent that he or she keeps his commands? out of a love for him. As he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Does the person you're interested in love Jesus? Paul has just as much of a right to take on a believing wife as the other apostles. Peter was married. We know this because one of Jesus's first miracles on record was healing Peter's mother-in-law. We see that in Luke chapter 4, verses 38 through 40. 
And Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. I like how Peter has like three names in the Bible, right? You have Simon, you have Peter, and you have Cephas. And to some level, I can actually resonate with him because people in our ministry still don't know whether to call me Andrew or Cross, right? Uh, for, the, for the record, pastor is my favorite. So feel free to call me that. Um, Paul had the right to take a believing wife. Peter had a wife. The half-brothers of Jesus had wives. This truth flies in the face of Roman Catholicism restricting marital rights of their priests, right? If they claim Peter was the first pope and Peter was married, come on. But at the same level, Protestants can go the opposite direction as well. I remember when I was uh, still at seminary thinking about who was the Lord going to have for me to pastor. And so I start kind of doing some uh, researching of seeing what opportunities were available for me uh, to just see what, what job openings are there for pastors. And you know what I found over and over again? Something to the effect of must be married. Single men need not apply. I praise God that Bellevue hired me as a single adult because I think that speaks highly of our church and proves just how single adults are valued here. I, Paul has a right to be buried, but that isn't the liberty that is foremost on his mind. No, in verse 6, Paul poses a question to address the matter that was obviously an issue for him. Are Paul and Barnabas not able to receive payment for their ministry? Sounds like a no-brainer, doesn't it? In other words, did they have to be bivocational preachers, whereas other apostles were supported by churches financially? Paul uses several metaphors to prove his point. A soldier doesn't pay his own way to serve in the military. A vineyard owner doesn't plant a vineyard without eating from its fruits. A shepherd doesn't tend to a flock without drinking the milk it provides. Jobs come with their fair share of perks. And don't tell me that you haven't used somebody's employee discount. We all, we've all done it. These examples are from human experience. But he looks at the law to confirm these rights. And may that be said of us, right? That we learn from human experience, yes, but we always come back to God's word to have that experience confirmed by objective truth. May that always be said of us, that whatever we experience always has to be conformed into the objective truth of what the Bible says about our human experience. Paul quotes from a list of miscellaneous laws recorded in Deuteronomy to confirm his experience. It says in Deuteronomy 25, 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. The law prohibits the owner from muzzling the ox while it does its job. Paul makes the case that God is giving a principle for his people more than he is caring about the well-being of the ox. And he argues that the principle still stands. He applies to 
he applies it to the plowman and the thresher to show the hope they have to share in the produce of their labor. Then he applies it to the apostles and the preachers. He poses a modest question. If you benefit from my spiritual labor, is it too much to ask that you support my ministry with tangible gifts? He reminds the Corinthians that the bond between them is greater and more substantial because it is spiritual in nature. Paul acknowledged his rights fully. He was very aware of them. He had a keen awareness of what rights were available to him in Christ. He was informed by his experience, and that was confirmed in Scripture. He had all the knowledge he needed to, to make a conscious decision with those rights. And you know what his decision was? It's the second making of a champion. He surrendered his rights. A champion surrenders his rights. Paul surrendered his rights. And we see that in verses 12 through 15. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have not made, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. A champion surrenders his rights. Paul makes it clear that he is not utilizing his God-given right. He and Barnabas went without payment for their spiritual labor. They worked a job on the side to pay for their ministry. You see, Paul was a tent maker by trade. He relied on that trade to support himself, specifically in the city of Corinth. It was Corinth. It was in Corinth that Paul met Priscilla and Aquila. And we see that in Acts chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, which say, And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul and Barnabas would have rather worked a second job to pay for their ministry rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whoa. He says, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Can you say the same? Let's just kind of lean into a reflective exercise real quick. When was the last time someone responded to something you did with, that doesn't seem very Christ-like, Think about that. When was the last time you heard those words said to you? That doesn't seem very Christ-like. My guess is that in that moment, you observed something well within your rights as a Christian 
in front of a non-Christian or maybe a nominal Christian. And it proved to be an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And the tricky thing is, it can be anything. Right? These are rights. These are liberties. Good things. But they can be an obstacle to people seeing and valuing the gospel, the most important thing in your life. And so just a question to prompt you, is your heart the least bit sensitive to what could potentially be an obstacle to someone seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ at work in your life? Is your heart the least bit sensitive to that? Of what could potentially be an obstacle to them seeing the gospel at work in your life? Is your social media filled with political sound bites and gotcha clips? Do you use words that the world would apologize for using in the church? It's funny when people find out I'm a pastor, all of a sudden they get a filter. Oh, bro, 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 sorry, sorry, man. Do you use those same words they apologize for? Are you emotionally overbearing to the extent that people doubt your beliefs? Let's say that one again, just in case. Are you emotionally overbearing to the extent that people doubt your beliefs? You say you believe in a gospel? These are just a few examples. And you may ask, don't I have freedom of speech? Can't I have a raw, unfiltered moment for myself? Yes, these are your rights. Certainly. But when your rights obstruct the gospel, are they worth claiming? Again, Paul is saying this to the Corinthians to help them wrestle with their rights. So if I can give you one applicational point in passing, asking yourself this would be really good. When observing my rights could be an obstacle to someone's view of the gospel that I treasure more than anything else, it is time to surrender that right. So in your personal evaluation of your own rights, evaluating, do does this right mean so much to me that I would, I would hold on to it instead of prioritizing the gospel? When observing my rights could be an obstacle to someone's view of that gospel that I treasure more than anything else, it is time to surrender that right. Paul continues to make this case. Those employed in the temple service get their food from the temple. Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings, right? This is old covenant. He builds the case and then finishes it with a command from the Lord, the new covenant. As Jesus was sending out the 12 disciples into the harvest, right? Their first time going out two by two, Jesus is saying, hey, this is what you're going to do. He gives them a command to share the good news about the kingdom to come. And he says, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. 
finishes with this. For the laborer deserves his food. The laborer deserves his food. Paul was familiar with the teachings of Christ enough to know that Jesus wanted his servants to receive food for their gospel labor. Paul stood firm on his rights while simultaneously surrendering them. Do you catch that? He's saying, this is my right. There it goes. I surrender it. He claims that he has not utilized these rights. And his point for bringing it up isn't to gain any such provision. He says that relinquishing his rights gives him an ability to boast among his opposition, those questioning his apostleship. Now, it's important to note, he doesn't want, uh, he isn't boasting in a prideful sense or in any way that would steal glory from God. It's not what he's doing. It is a boasting that expresses a right, rightful sense of joy and fulfillment in what the Lord has accomplished through him. He's boasting in the Lord. It's the kind of boasting that says, drench the wood and water three times over and the God of Israel will still burn up the sacrifice. It's that kind of boasting. Boasting that we, we watch Elijah in the Bible, as he comes face to face, outnumbered with the prophets of Baal, and he taunts them because he knows what the Lord is capable of. And so Paul says, withhold the payment that is due me and see how God will still provide for me as I proclaim the gospel free of charge. It's boasting in the Lord. By refusing compensation, Paul removes any appearance of selfish motive in sharing the gospel. In this act of surrender, he prioritizes the gospel, making him further into a champion. So that's our third makings of a champion is a champion prioritizes the gospel. A champion prioritizes the gospel. Paul prioritized the gospel. We see that in verses 16 through 23. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if, I, if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. 
a champion prioritizes the gospel. Merely preaching the gospel does not give Paul an ability to boast. What would he boast about? He doesn't preach the gospel so that he can boast. He preaches the gospel out of a necessity. Paul woes himself if he does not preach the gospel. It is very similar to what we see spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, he says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. I can't stop telling people about God. I physically cannot keep myself from mentioning his name. I have to tell others about Jesus. I cannot keep the gospel to myself. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Where is that in our church today? Where is that in our ministry today? If I don't share Jesus with somebody at Bellevue Loves Memphis this weekend, I'm going to explode. I pray that we would share the gospel from a position of gratitude and guts. Far above and beyond any sense of guilt. Paul is convinced that if he does choose to share the gospel, he will have a reward from it. But even if he doesn't choose it for himself, the gospel is his to steward well. So he will do it out of obedience. And we saw this. He accepted this back in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. When he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, this is how one should regard us. Talking about apostles. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. The mysteries of God he refers to there is the gospel. And how mysterious is the gospel for us? Why would a holy God want anything to do with us. We can't get our act together. We are broken people who have disobeyed our God. We have lived in lawlessness. Why would a good, wise, holy God want anything to do with us? It's a mystery. But he definitely wants something to do with us. He created us after all. And by the blood of Jesus Christ, he has redeemed us. And from one degree of glory to another, he is sanctifying us, making us more into the image of his son so that we would reflect the glory of our God the more that we image Jesus Christ in our lives. Do you believe the gospel? that Jesus lived the life you could not live and died the death that you deserve, was raised from the grave to defeat sin, hell, and the grave? If you have, 
excellent. Now, how are you leveraging that truth in every dynamic of your life? Every aspect. No stone unturned. Paul is prioritizing the gospel above everything in his life. And you know what? The gospel is worth it. The good news of Jesus Christ that saves lost sinners like you and me is worth every inch of our life. Every ounce of it. So if I can give you an applicational point in passing, we are successful in this life in so much as we are faithful to serve Christ and steward his gospel faithfully. As you're contemplating, what do I make my life about? This is at the top of the list, not the bottom. Are you faithful to serve Jesus Christ? And are you faithful to steward his gospel in your relationships with others? Paul stewarded the gospel faithfully by surrendering his right to receive every to receive payment for his ministry work. But what's interesting is that he calls that his reward as well. It is rewarding to, to him to prioritize the gospel above his rights. And Paul claims to be free from all. Again, he has rights, he has liberties, but he has purposefully made himself a servant to all so that he might win more of them to a saving relationship with Jesus. And this is where he shows how he accommodated his target audience for the sake of the gospel. He says, to the Jew, I became a Jew to win Jews, which basically means he adhered to Jewish code while pointing Jesus, Jews to the Messiah King, Jesus. He says to those under the law, he became as one under the law to win those under the law. He conformed to the strict practices of the day while pointing to the lawgiver. To those outside the law, he became as one outside the law to win those outside the law, that is Gentiles. And one thing that the Jews didn't do was eat with the Gentiles. So you know what Paul did when he was ministering to those outside the law? He ate with Gentiles. And as he's breaking bread with them, you know who he's telling them about? Jesus. To the weak, he became weak to win the weak. And this is weak in conscience, like we talked about last week. So he surrendered his rights so as not to harm the conscience of others and to share the gospel with them so that they could develop that conscience rightly. And Paul summarizes the principle in this way in verses 22 and 23. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul acknowledged his rights. He surrendered those rights. He prioritized the gospel. He knew that even if he didn't get physical provision for his gospel labor, he would always get a spiritual reward. And that is where we see the completion of what it makes what makes a champion. He worked toward the reward. A champion works toward the reward. Paul worked toward the reward. We see that 
in our remaining verses, verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul enters into this vivid illustration to make his final point in his defense. He says that all runners run so that they would receive a prize, and he urges the Corinthians to run their race so they would obtain the prize. He leans into the illustration to highlight how athletes exercise self-control in every aspect of their lives. I don't know if you watched the Winter Olympics at all, but you probably, if you did, saw some sort of montage of what that athlete has been doing for the last four years of their lives and working towards this event, right? This one moment. And they did it all for a shiny medal. Right Back in Paul's day, it was a, it was a wreath, uh, a, a crown of foliage that would wither with time. Paul connects the illustration with the Christian by suggesting that the wreath we're racing after is imperishable. It won't wither with time. And for that reason, Paul isn't perpetually practicing as a Christian, right? He isn't running without a race. He isn't boxing without an opponent. He's in the race. He's in the ring. He's running and he's fighting. And at the end of his life, he looks back and you know what he says? Tells us in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul kept his life in check. He exercised self-control so that he wouldn't disqualify himself after preaching to others. Coming back to this Winter Olympics, um, normally don't watch figure skating but there was some drama that broke out, right? Some of you aren't aware of this. There was this Russian figure skater girl that got caught doping, 15 years old, and the whole figure skating community protests against her, and they laid it on thick. They were coming after her. And you know what? It distracted from the entire competition. Paul didn't want that for his ministry. He didn't want distractions for himself, for the church in Corinth. And the Holy Spirit doesn't want that for us. There's some distractions. Paul went through the discomfort, this discomfort 
of surrendering his rights for the reward of the gospel's advancement because he didn't want to be disqualified from receiving his reward. Which brings us to our main point for the night. The more rights you surrender in this life for the sake of the gospel, the greater your reward will be in eternity. The more rights you surrender in this life for the sake of the gospel, the greater your reward will be in eternity. Uh, we, we can only speculate as to what that reward will be like. Right? We're told in Scripture that we will give an account of our lives before God, and, and anything that uh, just doesn't is of no value is just going to burn up. But there will be some, some things that remain. I'm just thinking about how material things just aren't kind of the highlight of Scripture. I never hear Jesus really highlighting material things. He's really highlighting relationships. He's really highlighting people, people made in the image of God and needing redemption by the blood of Jesus. And so when I think, and again, this is speculation, but when I think about what is the reward that awaits us in heaven, I don't have a hard time grappling with this because I think it's people. I think it's the people that we impacted in our lifetime and did some spiritual good in their lives. It's the people we disciple. Because we know the command of Jesus as he's ascending, after, after talking with his disciples, he ascends to the heavens of the God, but the last thing he says that's on his mind is disciples. Hey guys, make disciples. So that's what we see the disciples do. The disciples become apostles and the apostles preach, preach and proclaim the word of God. They make disciples and the church blows up to where we are here 2,000 years later in Memphis, Tennessee, still talking about it. What is your reward in heaven? I don't know about you, but I think it's people the people we influenced for the sake of the gospel. So what lengths are you willing to go to in order to see someone get saved? What lengths are you willing to go to in order to see someone get saved? The reward is worth it. So run your race that you might obtain it.